0: All right, if you can grab your Bibles today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 26. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 26. And if I can have you stand one more time for the reading of God's Word, if you're able, please stand. And the the scripture will be on the screen behind me, or in your Bibles, or in your phones, or whichever way you want to look to. Mark 11, verse 12 to 26. On the following day, when they came from Bethany... And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, so we come to the story of the fig tree. And and the story of the fig tree is connected to the account of Jesus in the temple. There's the fig tree, and then there's the temple in in the center. This is another one of those... uh, Those places in Mark where he uses what we've called a a literary sandwich technique, where he takes a story and then he puts a story inside of it and he breaks breaks it up. So there's there's a story, then there's a middle story, and then then the the culmination of that first story at the end. And the middle part, the middle story, is the focus, and it, it helps us to interpret the whole, okay? And so what's going on in the middle is very important, and... The big picture of all of this story is this. If you, if you want to summarize it all, it's this. God's temple was supposed to be a place where there were fruitful worship and service to God. Okay, God's temple was supposed to be a place where fruitful worship and service to God would begin. Yet the temple, which was barren of the fruit God had designed it for, was God. And, res- and the temple actually represented the opposite. So like a prophet of old, Jesus is using the fig tree as an object lesson in a description of what God was going to do to the fruitless religious activities happening on the Temple Mount. All right? So let's, let's look at this. And if you want to summarize the whole thing, the whole sermon, if you, get, if you take nothing else away from it today, take this away. When you stand praying, forgive. Okay? When you stand praying, forgive. So it says in verse 12, on the following day, so... So Jesus had come into the, to the city in his triumphal or non-triumphal entry, as we looked at last week. He comes into the city, he looks around, and he goes back to Bethany, right? And on the following day, he comes back into Jerusalem. So we, we read that last week that Jesus had left the temple the evening before, he looked around and saw what was going on in the temple. It says he looked around at everything going on. The place where people were supposed to be praying and worshiping God, there was selling of merchandise. And there was segregation between the Jewish inner court and the the Gentile outer court. And then there was commercialization of religion. And there was distraction from prayer. There was a preoccupation with ritual and religious paraphernalia. There was business and profit of ministry. There was corrupt leadership who were robbing the pilgrims coming in. The system based on half-truths and religious rituals devoid of meaning. And all this was going on and Jesus took it in. And he went to Bethany, and he slept, and he woke up. And they all came from Bethany, and they were on their way back to Jerusalem. And that's where we find ourselves today. And it says that that Jesus was hungry. So Jesus was walking the two-mile hike from Bethany to Jerusalem, and for some reason, he was hungry. So he went over to a fig tree, hoping to find fruit on it. And it says that the tree was in leaf. And in my studies... Uh, I learned that fig tree because I'm not I'm not a I'm not a a, I don't know a lot about fig trees. They're not around here. So I learned this that a fig tree at this particular time of year, when Jesus was going through, would put forth leaves. And this was a sign that there was also little green. I think they call them pagim, something like that, or an unripe small fig fruit would be there. It wouldn't be time for figs, but there would when the leaves were forth that those little pagim would be there. And they'd be on the tree. And it was widely known that that the natives to these areas would sometimes eat these unripe figs because they're they're actually edible. And so the tree looked like it would have an unripe fruit on it, but it turns out to be a barren tree. All right, nothing but leaves, no fruit. And it was, it was, it says, Mark says it wasn't the season or the time, the word is kairos, time. It wasn't the time for figs. So Mark explains to the reader, to us, that the reason he did not find figs on the tree is that it wasn't time for ripe figs, but there should have been those little ones under. On now, if you think about this, wouldn't this make Jesus' curse on the helpless fig tree seem vindictive and mean and maybe a little unnecessary? It could seem like that, but we must consider the fact that Jesus is making a prophetic utterance here, a very important point. And just as Jesus, the carpenter, would have cut down a tree and used it to make a table or a chair or, or whatever. Jesus, the prophet, uses the fig tree as an object lesson and a tool of prophecy. And he says to it, no, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. So Jesus curses the fig tree. Jesus uses his authority to do the only negative or destructive miracle that's recorded in the Gospels. Okay, it's the one time that there's something negative that comes from his miracles. And it says that the disciples heard it. All right, hang on to that. The disciples heard it. They may have wondered why Jesus was so forceful with this poor, helpless fig tree. But whatever questions they would have would be made clear and answered within 24 hours. All right, so now we get to the the second part in verse 15. A house of prayer. This is point two in in your outline. So Jesus enters the temple. And it's believed that Jesus entered a temple complex through the court of the Gentiles which was the place where all the buying and selling, merchandising and bartering would have been taking place. And Jesus began to do something that was very uncharacteristic of him. He was forceful and angry. And it says that Jesus drove out those who sold and bought. So those folks, you know, there's scarves and food and trinkets and t-shirts and sandals and treats and sweets. I mean, you name it. Probably logo t-shirts and souvenir cups and plates and pottery and jewelry and food wagons and food trucks and all that stuff were probably there. I mean, they're just like us today. They, they did it. And and from my reading, the temple outer court there was just full of that stuff. And there were vendors set up all around the court of the Gentiles, all trying to make a buck. All making a profit. And then he, it says he overturned the tables of the money changers. There was a certain silver coin that was, only accepti- was the only acceptable currency for paying the temple tax. And so people from all over were required to come and exchange their unacceptable currency from around the area for this, uh, for this currency that was used in the temple. Of course, the exchangers gouged the people so they could make a profit. Right. And that says that he overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, most of the pilgrims coming to the temple were not affluent or extremely wealthy, and so they would purchase pigeons or doves for their sacrifices in the temple. And at this time of year especially, they were in such high demand that the prices were inflated, so the exchangers, or so those who sold pigeons were what? They were making a huge profit on the people that came in. And then he says that he didn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. So, there are people that were buying their goods and their, their sweets and their, their sandals and whatever, and they're carrying them across the, the temple complex from one end to the other, and they weren't concerning themselves with praying or worshiping. It was just with fulfilling rituals and buying the necessary items and, and moving their way forth. Commercialism, consumerism, distraction. It sounds like a mess sounds noisy. It sounds chaotic. It sounds unscrupulous. It sounds greedy. It sounds self-centered. It sounds like business. Is this what God intended to happen in the temple? And then it says that he was teaching. Mark records Jesus quoting two short phrases from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. But Jesus was teaching. Mark says he was teaching. So Uh, as he was clearing out that temple. So you have to imagine or understand that Jesus was saying much more than what is actually recorded in Mark's gospel. In fact, he was most likely quoting the Old Testament context to these phrases which are recorded in Mark's gospel and teaching the people what God was saying to them, and more specifically to the religious leaders of the temple, from those passages. So if that's the case, if that's the premise and i believe that it is then we're going to look at those passages so we can get an understanding of what jesus was saying okay so we're going to turn to isaiah chapter 56 verses 6 to 8 okay so the first part is a house of prayer for all nations so if you want to turn there isaiah chapter 56 we're going to be in verse 6 through 8 you can listen if you if you don't if you don't want to turn there you can listen to me as i read isaiah 56 6 to 8 Listen to this. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. For all nations, the Lord God who de- who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, "I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered." So it's talking about everyone coming to the temple to worship. There's foreigners will join themselves to the Lord. They will minister. They will love the Lord. They will be his servants. this language is identical to what Jesus has been teaching all along, this idea of service and being last in order to be first and loving the Lord your God. All these things are things that Jesus had been teaching about. And God says his temple should be called the house of prayer. The temple was to be a place where people could come to get away from the hustle and bustle, from the hype and the hysteria, from the lies and the deceit from the noise of the crowds, from the politics and the politicians, from the false gods and the cultic sects, from the propaganda and the news, and come to offer their sacrifice and praise to God. The house of prayer was to be a place they could come and joy, joy that they and their offerings were acceptable to God. And it was for all nations. The temple was to be a place where this was true for anybody. From whatever nationality or social status or background, they could all come and pray to the true God of heaven. However, in contrast to a place of prayer for all nations, the temple activities excluded and exploited the Gentiles. There was price gouging, there was selling overpriced merchandise, there was commercialization, there was long lines and empty rituals and all that and it was all that was left of the temple proceedings. And the Gentiles were not even allowed into the inner Part of the temple. The Jews held animosity and disdain towards the Gentiles, and so you had to be a Jew to get the VIP pass into worship God in the inner part of the temple. This is not what God intended. So He sent Jesus to include the Gentiles into the worship of Yahweh. And this is the context for Jesus' next statement, which I believe is directed at the Sanhedrin, the leaders and the rulers of the temple. All right? So, if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 7, we're going to look at a lengthy passage there. And it's going to explain what Jesus was talking about. He says, You have made it a den of robbers. Well, here's Jeremiah chapter 7. Um, Just listen as I read along. I'm going to read quite a few verses here. But here's the thing. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord... Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, so the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice, One with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your harm, then I will let you dwell in this place and in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. "'Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, "'make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, "'and then come and stand before me in this house, "'which is called by my name, and say, "'We are delivered,' only to go on doing all these abominations. "'Has this house, which is called by my name, "'become a den of robbers in your eyes? "'Behold, I myself have seen it,' declares the Lord. "'Go now to my place,' That was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you, and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight." Pretty stark and strong words from the Lord. So this is from Jeremiah chapter 7. And if you saw, there were some key words. He talked about justice, a lack of it. He talked about oppression to the fatherless and the widow and the immigrant and the innocent blood. Child sacrifices, abortion. The leaders would live corrupt and unjust lifestyles, and then they would run to the temple, just like, in, like he's portraying here in, in Jeremiah, and they would say, we are delivered. Now remember when you were a kid and you would, you would play tag, and you would have that one spot, and you would run to that spot, and you'd yell, go, right, I'm safe, I, I'm here, you can't tag me, I, I can't be it, right? You were safe. Well, these corrupt and evil, greedy leaders were running to the temple and yelling, go, doing whatever they wanted, exploiting the foreigners, abusing widows and orphans, and then running to the temple to offer sacrifices so their sins could be burnt up and they could go on doing what they were doing before. They were using God as an excuse to live sinful lives instead of changing their ways. And consequently, the the temple became a den, a hiding place for robbers for thieves and plunderers and looters and sexually abusive people. And the temple became a place where the religious thieves and looters would go to hide their evil ways behind the guise of religiosity. They desecrated the temple. The religious leaders committed criminal acts of injustice and price gouging and shedding innocent blood and outright theft right in the temple courts, hiding it all under the guise of worshiping God. It was their money-making scheme. They were greedy And in the very courts where Gentiles or foreigners or widows and the poor and the orphan were supposed to come and find compassion and worship the Lord and bring their needs before the God of the universe in prayer, right there they were being forced out, segregated, stolen from, swindled, and abused. The temple workers would steal from the poor and the widow and put it into the corrupt temple treasury, which simply perpetuated a system of abuse and misappropriation of funds. They were lording it over people. They were perpetuating a system in which they were served. And Jesus, in stark contrast, came not to what? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus was proving all along that he was a different kind of messiah. A true Messiah who called into question the hearts and motives of men and women. And it says at the end, it says, the scribes heard it. It was just like the disciples heard that, that curse on the fig tree. Well, the scribes heard what Jesus was saying. And Jesus was outing their little secret. And Jesus was calling their empty religious practices into question. Jesus was exposing their hypocrisy. And it says that they feared him. Now back in chapter 4, verse 41, the disciples feared Jesus because the wind and the sea obeyed him. And in chapter 5, verse 15, the townsfolk uh, feared him because he just cast a legion of demons out of a person. And now in eleven eighteen, 18, the scribes fear him because they're being exposed for what they're doing. And the crowd was astonished at his teaching, it says. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, the crowd was astonished at his teaching then too because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus used his authority to proclaim truth. The scribes could not teach or lead in truth or with authority because they were hypocrites. In chapter 7, verse 37, the crowd was astonished beyond measure because he he made the deaf hear and the mute speak. And Jesus used his authority to give voice to the voiceless. Now in chapter 11, verse 18, the crowd was astonished at his teaching again. Mark doesn't mention in this context exactly what Jesus was saying that astonished them, but my guess is that he was using these passages that we just read to flat out denounce the Sanhedrin, the political leaders, the religious leaders, and all of them there in the temple. So Jesus was voicing the hypocrisy, unveiling the deceit, revealing the corruption, exposing the truth. And the people were standing there with their jaws just hitting the floor because it was resonating with them. They were were learning this stuff and, and Jesus was being bold and courageous and they were going, what in the world is going on? And so the religious elite sought to destroy him because of his teaching. Evil people fear truth because truth exposes evil. Evil people will use lies to hold others in bondage. Evil people always seek to silence those who speak truth. Hear me. Just look around. The video platforms censor out truth. Social media sites censor out truth. Lying to us by saying it's harmful to us. Really? Since when is an opposing viewpoint harmful? Since when do big-name, exceedingly wealthy, but morally unethical people get to determine for us what information is harmful for us? But this is nothing new. As we can see, it was happening in Jesus' day too. They were trying to stop him from speaking. The big-name, wealthy, morally unethical, evil religious and political leaders of the day were trying to silence and censor out what Jesus was saying. They wanted to destroy him. They had to censor what he was saying, or their control of the people would be exposed. Nothing new under the sun. In contrast, humble people crave truth, for truth is empowering and healing. Godly people seek truth, for the truth sets Free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, John chapter 8. Truth is a necessary component for the true worship of God. All who worship must worship in spirit and in truth, John chapter 4. So a rule of thumb, if something is being censored by the world, then that is something that you may want to pay attention to. God's truth always leads to freedom, prosperity, healing, joy, community, peace and love. Man's deceitful ways always lead to control and poverty and sickness and depression and isolation and violence and hate. And you can see it playing all around us. I hope you understand that this is very applicable to today. We are living in an incredibly confused and divisive time. This is why the Bible is so important. It alone teaches truth. We've got to listen to Jesus or we're going to flounder. And Jeremiah 7 predicted the fall of the temple. We read through that, and it was, it was predicting the first fall of the temple way, way back, hundreds of years earlier. And just as Jeremiah predicted, the temple fell. And then they, they came back and they rebuilt a second temple, and this is the temple that Jesus walks into. And Jesus is again using the same passage in Jeremiah chapter 7 to predict another fall of the temple. And guess what? It fell again in AD 70. It was destroyed. Now why would God's judgment come upon the temple in 8070? Because their hearts were hard. They used religious activity to hide their sin, their theft, their extortion, their abortion, their violence, done for their own profit. In short, because they desecrated the temple and all that it stood for. Because they rejected God's Messiah, who was actually standing in the temple, proclaiming truth to them. And so it says that Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Point three, the withered fig tree. So it says that they passed by in the morning. So in the morning, so, so they, had, they left the temple, they went back to Bethany for the night, and now they were on their way back to Jerusalem. This is day three, they're coming back to Jerusalem. And they saw, Peter remembered this whole incident stuck in Peter's mind because it was pretty crazy. There's the fig tree that was there and had leaves on it. One day, the next day was withered to its roots. Now, in the Old Testament, fig trees were used to represent spiritual nature of Israel. All right, uh, fruitful fig trees represented genuine, fruitful worship and service to God. As in Hosea chapter nine, verse ten, he said, "Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel." Like the first fruit on the fig trees in its season, I saw your father. So, fruitfulness meant that they were following God. Fruitless trees, those without fruit, on the other hand, represented disingenuous, self-centered religiosity. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 8. From the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. What did we just say was happening in the temple, right? So, This was way back in Jeremiah's time as well. Everyone was greedy for unjust gain. And that that word actually means profit acquired by violence. Isn't that crazy? Profit acquired by violence. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Deception. Lies. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. And he continues, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them is passed away from them. So so Jesus, in this picture of the fig trees, is bringing bringing back into their minds this prediction and this prophecy by Jeremiah. So Jesus' prophetic act using the fig tree as an example was an understandable sign of judgment upon the barren religious temple activities that were going on. And Jesus was teaching truth. He was exposing the greedy hearts of the religious leaders who acquired profit through violence and deceived all who came to the temple with their lies. It was sad. The temple, representing the physical space, along with the religious practices, all which were corrupted by the leaders, all of it would wither to its roots. For Jesus actually predicts in Mark chapter 13, we're going to look at this in a few weeks, in Mark chapter 13, that one stone of the temple would be left upon another. In fulfillment of the prophecy, only a few years later, in AD 70, the temple would be destroyed, and it still remains destroyed to today. Fulfilling Jesus' prediction and curse, may no one ever eat of the fruit of you again. The fig tree represented the temple and the old sacrificial system. It was cursed. It would be destroyed. It would be gone. And in its place, God would establish Jesus as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Jesus is the new way that we approach God. And the new dwelling place of God would be who? Would be us, the church. In 1 Corinthians 3:16, Paul says, "Do you not know that you, plural, you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you?" And then in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22, Paul says this to the Ephesians, "So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets." All the way back to Jeremiah and Isaiah, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple. That's all of you being grown into a temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God. No use for that brick and mortar temple. We are the temple of God. And it's incredible that since the church has started, the temple has not been rebuilt. I believe it's because we are the temple. The church is the assembly where all nations can come and pray to the God of God. Of heaven, So all that's about the fig tree. And then we get to this, Jesus answered them. He says, have faith in God. Now all through Mark's gospel, we've seen the importance of faith. Faith is the opposite of fear, remember? Do not fear, only believe, Jesus said. Faith is also hope in the impossible, by the, is, that it is possible by the power of God. He said, all things are possible for those who believe, Remember? And he says, so have faith in God, and he says, ask in prayer. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, and here it is again. Faith is linked with prayer. The act of faith is prayer. Faith is exercised through prayer. And Jesus was talking about here moving mountains and casting them into the sea. Now, it seems like a very big prayer. But why does Jesus leap from cursing a fig tree to throwing mountains into the sea. This just seems really confusing. I mean, When I first looked at this passage, I was going, what is going on here, right? And why would I want to throw a mountain into the sea anyway? What good does that do? There's no need for that. I, I don't see a need for any of us to say, mountain, go into the sea. What, what does that do for us? Okay, What does it do for God's kingdom? Is Jesus talking about something else here? And if so, what? I've said all along, geography is important, right? Geography is very important. So Jesus was walking away from the Temple Mount, right? He's walking away from the Temple Mount. And mountain in the Bible is is really important. In the Bible, mountain carried the connotation of kingdom or ruling power. Jesus had just cleansed the temple, denouncing the evil leaders, taught about true worship and prayer, and now he passes the fig tree that was withered because it had no fruit. And he points Back to the Temple Mount, I think. He points back to the Temple Mount and says this. Have faith in God. Truthfully, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, because he says this, this mountain, the temple, the place where religious leaders who were no more than thieves and robbers corrupted the religious system and and used it for their own gain. They exploited the poor and they, they mistreated the widow and they stole from the immigrant and all of this was being done. They murdered the innocent. Whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now that kind of changes it a little bit, doesn't it? Jeremiah chapter 51. Jeremiah chapter 51. Verse 24 and 25. Listen to this. We're a little bit more about about mountains. This is really important. Jeremiah chapter 51, 24. I will repay Babylon. God's pronouncing a curse on Babylon. I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Now listen. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. So God's talking to Babylon. He says, I'm I'm against you, destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. So Babylon is described as a destroying mountain that God was going to pull down. It was evil and corrupt and religiously violent and it was a violent political system and God was going to destroy it. In Ezekiel chapter 28, it's a longer passage, but you can read about God casting Lucifer, who was was the, the cherubim, out of what? The mountain of God. The holy, perfect, religious, political system that God ruled, he cast him out of the mountain of God. In Job chapter 9, verse 3 to 7, it says this If one wished to contend with him, with God, one could not answer him one in a thousand. He is wise in heart, mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they don't know it, and he overturns them in his anger. I want to read one more psalm. This is really important. Psalm chapter 46. Psalm chapter 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Think of this in relation not just to mountains, but to kingdoms and powers. There's a river whose stream makes flat the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is the one who sets up kingdoms, and he's the one who destroys kingdoms. But notice the imagery of mountains being cast into the sea. So here's my thought of what's going on here. Think about what Jesus is referring to: the fig tree, the temple. So in context, with the prayer of faith, what is the prayer of faith concerning? Moving mountains of evil. removing religious and political systems that oppress and destroy and cause division among people tossing religious facades that are hiding places for thieves and robbers into the sea. And what did Jesus call the temple? He called it a house of prayer. The mountain, the religious and political rule of God, was centered at the temple, the house of prayer. It was the symbol of his reign and rule upon the earth. It was a place where all peoples of the earth could go and pray to God for mercy and forgiveness and grace. But it had become anything but that. It had become a den of robbers, a place that was dangerous and destructive, a place where people were victimized and abused, a place where truth was not spoken and lies were prominent. But Jesus, through his death, was going to remove the temple and its cultic trappings. In its place, he would be the means of approaching God. And in this incident, Jesus exposes the religious leaders who were evil and greedy. Why else would they want to destroy God? Or kill him. He was just talking. And he showed the people that the place was dangerous and destructive to them and not what God intended. Why else would they be astonished at his teaching? And in 8070, the temple was destroyed. No stone was left unturned. The, The Romans burnt the temple to the ground, and all the gold and silver that that was plastered on the inside of the temple. Well, it melted into the cracks of the foundation. And so they turned over the stones so they could pillage all the precious metal that was there, thus fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. And Jesus inaugurated a new kingdom, a new mountain, the kingdom of God, where his presence through the Holy Spirit would reside in those of us who believe. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.16 says this, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, and he's quoting the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And he's talking about us. And you think about what the disciples then did in the book of Acts. They were healing and casting out demons and preaching with such power that the gospel spread throughout the entire world in a few years and turned the world upside down. A new kingdom has been inaugurated, and it's here. And it was all through faith and prayer. Now, I've read Daniel chapter 7 before. It's the description of the Son of Man. I want you to listen closely to this. Daniel chapter 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. I want you to listen to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Listen to this in light of what we've been learning from the Gospel of Mark and also what Daniel prophesied. And focus in on some key words. Listen to this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord Mountain of the house of the Lord, us, the church, shall be established as the highest of mountains. Jesus rule and reign as the Son of Man. Think of it. And shall be lifted up above the hills. He comes with the clouds of heaven. And all the nations will flow to it. All nations and languages should serve him. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. The way of Jesus, that we may walk in his paths, the road to the cross. Mountains, prayer, kingdoms. So, why does Jesus end this object lesson then with forgiveness? Why does he talk about faith and prayer that's big enough to cast out political and religious systems into the sea and then go into forgiveness? I want you to consider this with me based on this passage. We take this statement of Jesus often to mean that if, if we per, pray earnestly to God to provide for a raise at my job or heal someone with cancer or if we are bol- are, are believe enough you know, and don't doubt that it, will pot- that it will happen. And then when it doesn't, we, we wonder why our prayers went unanswered or unheard. Could it be that we're not praying for the right thing? Not that we shouldn't pray for those things, but maybe our prayers are too small. Perhaps we should be praying for God's kingdom, his mountain, to come, and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the next breath, could it be that we should pray for those who stand in the way of God's kingdom, who exploit and rob and murder innocent people, who mock and ridicule us for believing and proclaiming the hope-filled message of repentance and belief in Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins and entrance into eternal life, Could it be that we should pray for those people like Jesus and Stephen, the first martyr, prayed? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. For what is the greatest perpetrators of evil among people? And in a society, it's unforgiveness. Where does murder stem from? Where does violence begin? Where does... What fuels riots and plundering and, and looting? Where does vengeance originate? Unforgiveness. Jesus says, forgive. When you stand to pray for destruction of kingdoms and evil systems, have faith, yes, that it will happen, that God will do it through forgiveness. Listen to James 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Think about what we're seeing. What causes this? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. The only answer to the crazy that we see going on in our world right now is quite simply forgiveness. For everyone. We all need it. From the worst person that we can think of to the most saintly individual on the planet. And Jesus Christ satisfied the righteous judgment of God, which justly should fall upon all of us. Jesus paid the penalty for our murderous, adulterous, lying, thieving, abusive, violent, sin-filled hearts. And we all have hearts like that. We can judge those out there right now because... You know, they're violent and murderous and evil, but they're acting that way because they've never received the forgiveness of God in their lives. If you have never received the forgiveness, you will not be able to give it back. The first step in forgiving someone who is doing me wrong is to acknowledge that Jesus forgave me of all that I did wrong. In my natural state, in my heart of hearts, I'm just as evil and murderous as the next person. Come on. When you read the stories and you see it on the news, what's your first response? What's your guttal response? For me, it's vengeance. I want them to pay. We think that we own the corner on justice and righteousness. If, if, if I just made everyone think like me, if I could exact just justice upon that individual, then everything would be OK. It's a lie of Satan. None of us is an arbitrator of justice. God is. And no one can take the punishment for their sins or satisfy the demands of the sins of others and still live. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we need Jesus. He's the hero of this story. He took the punishment of our sins upon him. He offers forgiveness to all who believe. He established the way which restores community, heals brokenness brings genuine peace, and establishes true justice, it's through forgiveness. If you've not received his forgiveness yet, won't you do so today? You know the evil in your heart. Simply believe that Jesus died for that sin, took your punishment, and offers forgiveness and right standing before God, and you will be saved and forgiven. This is the first step in rebuilding our society. It starts right here. Years ago, when my wife was 12, she and her family were in the city of Mogadishu, Somalia. Her parents were there as part of a team of medical missionaries. And to make a long story short, there was a particular day in 1991 when Muslim extremists went through the city and murdered thousands of Christians and expats. And my wife's family was targeted to be killed as well. And they hid in a back room of their house as three separate groups of armed militia came through the house, ransacked the place, shooting their guns, yelling and hunting for them. My wife's family could see them through the smoke uh, glass window between them and their killers, but the killers could not see them. So God miraculously blinded their eyes to three separate groups so that they would be, um, be saved. After the third wave came through, they got up, left the house, hid in an alleyway, and my wife, she was 12 years old at this time, hid in an old tar barrel. And the thought that came to her head in this situation was, if these people knew Jesus, they would not be doing this. It was at that moment that she dedicated her life to being a disciple of Jesus, following him down the road to the cross. You know what she did in that tar barrel? She forgave. In reality, she understood that they did not know what they were doing. If we want to see the power of God unleashed through our, prayer, our faith-filled prayers, then I believe we need to begin where Jesus told us to begin. When you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you. The one thing, the only thing that's going to change our country, our burning cities, our screwed-up world, is receiving and offering the forgiveness of Jesus. I know it sounds simplistic and naive and weak, foolish and impossible, but that's the topsy-turvy nature of the kingdom of God, ushered in by the true Messiah and King, Jesus. It's simplistic. Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child should not enter it. It's naive. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. It's weak. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. It's foolish. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. It's impossible. Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. We can't toss mountains into the sea. Only God can and that is so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My preparation for this message was convicting to me. Because I know what I want. My encouragement to us, based on this passage, is that when we stand in prayer, we ask God to remove the evil and oppressive and violent mountains of the world and cast them into the sea. So His kingdom can, can come and His will can be done. And while we wait for Him to answer that prayer... Because it took almost 40 years before the temple was destroyed after Jesus made the prediction. So as we wait for God to fulfill those prayers, in his perfect timing, we also pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's pray. Father, our world is a mess. In our hearts, if we're honest, we just want to see it all destroyed. Yet you sent Jesus so that even the worst among us could have salvation and forgiveness through your name. So God, we forgive them. Forgive us first for having hearts that are hard. And then forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Help us to have the hearts of Jesus. Help us to stand in prayer. Help us to pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. We want you to reign and rule. We look forward to your kingdom being here in reality in, in the everyday life and in, in, the, in the planet as we see it. And we hope for that day. But in the meantime, God, may we forgive those that are doing evil to us, just as Jesus did. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.